1: 54th edition of Talk 10 Tuesday, and joining me this morning is my co-host, Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer is the founder and the president of Erica Reamer, M.D. Incorporated, and good morning, Erica. Hey, I'm really looking forward to our broadcast this morning.
2: I am, too. Good morning, Chuck, and hello, everybody.
1: Our lead story this morning is about sepsis. You're going to offer your insights on how to view sepsis 3.
2: That's right. I'm going to give my opinion on United Healthcare's decision and some tips on how to approach sepsis.
1: I am really looking forward to your reporting on sepsis 3. Thank you.
2: Thank you. I'm looking forward to hearing Lori Johnson report on latest developments with acute flaccid myelitis AFM. It's rare, but a serious condition.
1: And with Super Bowl coming up uh, this coming Sunday, a lot of attention is being focused on head injuries.
2: Lori will be reporting on the consequences of chronic traumatic encephalopathy, CTE.
1: Tomorrow is CTE Awareness Day. We're looking forward to that. In the meantime, returning to Talk 10 Tuesday following a long absence is the legendary HIM National Authority, Rose Dunn. We have much news to report during today's 354th edition of Talk 10 Tuesday, and we begin with the ICD-10 national correspondent, Tim Powell. He's at the news desk. The Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk is sponsored by ICD University.
0: Inviting you to subscribe to the 2019 ICD-10 Monitor Webcast Series. 40 ICD-10 educational webcasts for one low price. Buy for yourself or buy for your team. For details, call 800-252-1578, extension 2. Here now is Jim Powell.
3: So I'm looking at a public service announcement that says Medicare fee-for-service public provider enrollment data. Bullet point, this data was last refreshed on October 31st of 2018. Bullet point, the next data refresh is tentatively scheduled for January of 2019. What happens when the government shuts down? What happens when the government partially shuts down? There are long and short-term impacts. There are lingering impacts. We just ended the longest shutdown in federal government history and another deadline is looming. During a temporary shutdown, essential government services continue while non-essential services are stopped. What are essential government services? The government defines essential services as being services by whom ever rendered and whether rendered to the government or to any other person, the interruption of which would endanger the life, health, or personal safety of the whole or part of the population. There's a lot of interpretation here. Social security checks will go out. Medicare claims would almost certainly be paid, but could be deemed non-essential. Enrollment services are not Usually deemed, uh, are usually deemed as non-essential. If someone qualifies for Medicare but can't enroll during a shutdown and waits to go to the hospital and dies from lack of care, are enrollment services essential or non-essential? My personal views is they're essential. You could argue under EMTALA that hospitals would have to provide care for this type of patient. Should people that qualify for Medicare but can't enroll during a shutdown take the risk that Medicare will backdate their eligibility? After a month of being shut down, my other question on lingering impacts is how long it will take non essential services to catch up after the shutdown? Imagine if you stopped going to work for a month, what would the backlog on your desk look like? And business runs on data, and healthcare is a business. Included in non essential are data healthcare services that we've come to rely on. Here's just a partial list of data that was held up during the government shutdown hospital compare data sets, nursing home compare data sets renal dialysis compare data sets, updates to the national provider identifier database, Part B provider data, Medicare Advantage enrollment data, fee-for-service enrollment data, Obamacare enrollment data. In terms of the lingering impacts, what is the impact on healthcare providers and suppliers that didn't get updated data? It's difficult to say. What is the financial impact on the healthcare industry from having missed that data for this period of time? And what is the lingering impact from having messed the data on a moving forward basis? Who's to say? And with that, I guess that we can just hope that we avoid these shutdowns as they hit uh, the healthcare industry. And with that, back to you, Chuck. Thanks,
1: Tim, very much. That was Tim Powell. Tim is a compliance expert and an ICD-10 Monitor national correspondent. It's Tuesday. It's January 29th. And you're listening to the 354th edition of Talk to you in Tuesday. Stand by. The two
0: definitions of sepsis pose a quandary for providers. CMS uses the sepsis 1 bundle, but the industry relies on sepsis 3. Here's good news. An on-demand webcast navigates both worlds of sepsis, so you can support the diagnosis effectively and create rebuttals for denials. If you don't understand the nuances of the sepsis 3 definition, you may not be able to document to support the diagnosis effectively the ICD-10 Monitor webcast cuts through the confusion. For answers, listen on demand today by going to shop.icd10monitor.com or call 1-800-252-1578, extension 2. And save $25 when you enter the coupon code
1: word TUESDAY. Thanks, Clark. And by the way, that coupon code Tuesday is good for all ICD University webcasts, but only one per person and only available for the webcast. At the top of the broadcast, we mentioned that National HIM expert and past AHIM president, Rose Dunn, has a new series here on Talk to you Tuesday. It's a series on revenue cycle and how him professionals can play a role in other areas of the revenue cycle. Here now is Rose Dunn. Good morning, Rose. Welcome to the program. Well,
4: good morning, Chuck and everyone. Thanks for this new segment. As I mentioned to you, Chuck, I've been immersed in a revenue cycle management position recently and and continue to be excited about how the expertise of health information professionals is so perfect for this role. Let's start out with quickly defining revenue cycle. The revenue cycle is the compilation of activities from pre-admission before they come into the building to post-discharge that contribute to collecting our entitled reimbursement. The process is cyclical for each encounter and requires us to have a good understanding of the front, middle, and back-end activities of the cycle. HIM professionals already have a good handle on the mid-cycle activities, which often include um, case management's role in ensuring the admission and length of stay have been authorized by the payer, CDI's role, in achieving uh, complete and specific documentation from our providers, timely capture of charges from the various charging departments, such as surgery, pharmacy, laboratory, and the ED, and of course the coding professionals role in assigning the most accurate codes to qualify for the correct DRG. But revenue cycle activities embrace more than just these activities, and they go beyond the inpatient arena. So, understanding how each activity impacts other activities in the cycle is crucial for outpatient, professional fee, as well as the inpatient services. The revenue cycle executive must have processes in place to effectively manage payer contracts, fine-tune the charge master, build the claim scrubber and establish claim edits, establish protocols to collect accurate patient and payer information at the time of registration, validate eligibility, forecast costs for patients, manage provider MPIs, uh, identify causes that result in the claim being rejected or denied, and a myriad of other activities. Knowing the propensity for HIM professionals to dig into the details and establish practices that comply with the many billing and coding regulations, HIMRS could find pursuing revenue cycle roles as an ideal path for them. This leads me into why many organizations are changing the title of this position to revenue integrity. Revenue integrity is all about ensuring that the appropriate safeguards and procedures are in place to accurately charge for services that are fully supported by the clinical documentation and the record are consistent with appropriate clinical practice, as we'll hear about later, and are accurately reflected on the claim at the rate or rates we're entitled to. So, partnering with Compliance and having a robust revenue integrity committee structure is vital. For HIM professionals considering an opportunity as a revenue cycle executive but believe they need more in-depth understanding of front and back end activities, there are courses and certifications available from the Healthcare Financial Management Association and the American Association of Healthcare Administrative Management. Over the next few months, we'll explore one or two common issues, confronting those, managing this vital function. I'm pretty sure one of those will be denial management, but if our listeners wish for us to discuss any specific revenue cycle topic, send them in. Chuck, done is done for now. Back to you, Erica. Thanks, Rose. That was Rose Dunn. Rose is the
2: Chief Operations Officer for First Class Solutions and a past president of AHIMA. Chuck?
1: Thanks, Erica. And thank you, Rose, very much. And if you have a question or an area that you'd like to have Rose done explore, send me an email, buck at medlearnmedia.com. Thanks again, Rose. <music> Returning this morning with our Talk 10 Tuesday coding report is Lori Johnson. Good morning, Lori. Lori, you've got a couple of important stories to report this morning.
5: I do. We're catching up on AFM and CTE. Acute placid myelitis, AFM, is a complex condition that is rare and affecting mostly children. The Centers for Disease Control, the CDC, has, mon- has been monitoring this condition since 2014 when, it- when the first time they saw a large number of cases being reported. This disease begins as a mild respiratory illness or fever before developing into AFM. Over 90% of the cases are children, and the condition has been reported in 46 states and the District of Columbia. According to the recent report released by the CDC, the total number of confirmed cases for 2018 in the United States is 201. The highest number of cases were reported in Texas, which was 15, which was closely followed by Ohio, which was 13. It is too early to see if AFM is on the docket for the Coordination and Maintenance Committee meeting, which is scheduled for March 5th and 6th, 2019. The agenda should be available in February 2019. So let's talk about CTE. When late January, early February comes around, we think about the Super Bowl. I am not going to ask who you're cheering for, but I am going to talk about the latest regarding chronic traumatic encephalopathy, or F07.81. Merrill Hodge, who is a former professional football player and ESPN analyst, has written a book titled Brainwash about CTE. He had 12 concussions during his playing days, which included the Chicago Bears and the Pittsburgh Steelers. Hodge believes that the link between football and CTE is overstated. Hodge and Dr. Peter Cummings, who is a board-certified neuropathologist, believe that the science used to establish the link between football and CTE is flawed. Hodge stated that 110 brains out of 111 brains were studied but this example included only players who were having symptoms. His argument is that the numbers are not adding up. If you look at 110 positive brains out of 27,000 former football players, that number equates to less than a half a percent. He became involved in this topic when his own son wanted to play tackle football. Concussions do not only happen with football his fear is the publicity could mean the end of football as we know it. Back to you, Erica.
2: Thank you, Lori. That was nationally recognized coding authority Lori Johnson. Lori is a senior healthcare consultant for Revenue Cycle Solutions LLC.
1: Chuck. Thanks, Erica. And Lori, thank you very very much and just a reminder that uh, tomorrow is CTE Awareness Day. Our Tuesday focus the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, we know it as the Affordable Care Act. Others refer to it as Obamacare. Here now, with an exclusive report on what physicians need to know about the Affordable Care Act, is nationally recognized professional physician, coder, and auditor Terry Fletcher. Good morning, Terry. Welcome to the broadcast.
6: Good morning, and I'm happy to be here today. Uh, good morning, everyone. So, as you've probably heard by now, a federal judge in Texas last December struck down the Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare. That's unconstitutional, ruling that the law's individual mandate could not be severed from the rest of President Obama, uh, Barack Obama's landmark health care. The White House, in a statement, said that they expect the ruling will be appealed, and pending the appeal process, the law remains in place. So what does that mean exactly for the health care providers? Well, when the president celebrated the repeal of Obamacare individual mandate, including the congressional ta- in the congressional tax package, he said it was repealed. Well, that's not accurate, exactly accurate. The Affordable Care Act still remains available to Americans and a handful of states are continuing to enroll citizens in the program. It is being chipped away at, but it's not completely gone. The individual mandate portion of the ACA required Americans to buy at least the basic level of health insurance, or else they would have to pay a penalty. In the tax bill approved by Congress uh, last December, a small provision removed that requirement. So the ACA labeled this penalty what we call the shared responsibility payment. It was originally to be assessed at around $695 or about 2.5% of a shared of a family's household income. But that has gone now, so nobody has to pay their tax now. But what, their, what the ACA promised was quality healthcare insurance coverage for all Americans. A potential trade-off exists between the law's dual goals of promoting quality and preventing insurance companies from denying coverage or charging higher premiums to patients with pre-existing conditions. This issue gets lost in the continued partisan wrangling over Obamacare and will determine the ultimate fate of the law. In lay terms, Obamacare's pre-existing condition provisions literally penalize insurers that offer quality health care insurance to the sick. That was not the purpose of those provisions, I would assume. Their purpose was to make health insurance available to the sick. They did so in part by requiring insurers to charge sick enrollees no more than healthy enrollees of the same age and to do something similar when setting premiums across age groups. The result was that these provisions increased premiums for younger and healthier enrollees and reduced premiums for older and sicker enrollees. Well, this is where problems arose. When the government requires insurers to set premiums at a level below the amount the insurer expects an enrollee will file in claims, that government mandate prize ceiling penalizes insurers that offer quality coverage to those enrollees. So to illustrate my point, suppose insurers expect the average congestive heart failure patient to file $75,000 in claims. And Obamacare requires insurers to charge those patients a premium far below that amount. Say, like fifteen thousand. If each CHF patient brings an insurer fifteen thousand in premiums, but costs them seventy-five thousand in claims, then each CHF patient insurer attracts represents sixty thousand in a loss. So, since you know congestive heart failure patients care a lot about the quality of their coverage, they'll find and enroll in whichever health plan offers offers them the best coverage. The better the coverage the insurer offers, the more money the insurer loses. The so needless to say this is not ideally incentive and it's the structure was flawed. So I can see why it was deemed unfair or unconstitutional. But now because the tax penalty provision, the mandate was a limit, limited, all the math must be recalculated. but without any idea of who will purchase the plan and what diseases and chronic conditions they'll they'll bring, them, bring with them. So the mandate allowing children who live with you to remain on the patient's insurance plans up to age 26 that's still, into it. That's still in effect. But what do we do while we watch and wait to see what comes next? So I would not make long-range plans at this point contingent on continued existence of ACA or the probable appeal. What I would do is reread the ACA with the wisdom and hindsight of the last eight, nine years. Refamiliarize yourself with the act. Codependence on third-party payers is not going away anytime soon, so now's the time to scrutinize your contracts with payers. Take a plain yellow highlighter and highlight any terms, conditions, provisions, assumptions, or references or compliance requirements that touch the ACA in its original form from March 23rd of 2010. Make sure any patients coming in with printed off insurance cards under ACA actually are verified that they are actually, in fact, in the coverage of their encounter. They may not have paid their premium yet, but were able to print off a card. Obviously, there are flaws and concerns of both sides of the ACA ruling. But going forward, here's what I would hope our government will clarify in the coming days. And pretty much everything is contingent on these three things: exactly what services and conditions will be covered by insurers, and what at what rate of payment; what won't be reimbursed by insurers; and how many covered insured lives uh, to expect by age, gender, zip code, and existing known conditions, known diagnosis codes. These are facts. You have all of them in your systems. And they're not externally uh, sourced, so you you can find this internal data, you should be able to. Insurers aren't the only ones eligible for what if contingencies built into contracts. Providers have far more leverage than they even realize, far more than they ever had pushed on before. But if they don't realize it, they don't know what to ask for instead of the boilerplate language. So your negotiations within your contract, this is a business, not politics. It's really time to reassess what you're collecting based on the language in your insurance contracts. As the ACA continues to be chipped away at. So as providers, is this something you can do while you watch and wait what comes next? Are you ready to do it? Or is your practice potentially taking a risk due to no action at all? It's up to you. Good luck. Back to you, Erica.
2: Thanks, Terry. That was Terry Fletcher. Terry is a nationally recognized professional physician coding consultant, educator, and auditor. Chuck?
1: Thanks, Erica. And thank you again, Terry, very much. And you can read Terry's exclusive reporting on the Affordable Care Act in today's edition of the ICD-10 Monitor News. And now it's time for one of our popular segments here on Talk 10 Tuesday. It's called Talk Back. And once again, here's Dr. Erica Reimer with our lead story on sepsis 3.
2: Thanks, Chuck. I'm finishing up a targeted sepsis project, and I wanted to share with you some of what I learned. Earlier this month, United Healthcare announced that they were going to be using sepsis 3 criteria. I applaud them for being transparent and for using up-to-date clinical criteria. It used to be so exasperating to fight malnutrition denials in 2016, which were being generated based on the 1999 World Health Organization criteria. Their network their network bulletin did say, however, that and I quote, in clinical operation, the sequential sepsis-related organ failure assessment, or SOFA, score of two points or more, which is associated with an in-hospital mortality of greater than 10%, should be used in defining sepsis. This is the part that disturbed me. The current definition of sepsis is life-threatening organ dysfunction, caused by a dysregulated host response to infection. When I'm teaching residents, I tell them, in the olden days, we used to diagnose sepsis by walking into a room, recognizing the patient was sick as he and saying, this patient is septic. I didn't need those stinking SIRS criteria or sofa boxes to tick off. I just knew that the patient was sick with a capital S. But when sepsis 3 came out, I realized that the reason I could tell that the patient was that sick was because there was vital sign derangement and organ dysfunction. SOFA are not the diagnostic criteria for sepsis. It is a scoring system to help prognosticate mortality in the ICU of septic patients. It can be used to elucidate and quantify organ dysfunction but sepsis is a clinical diagnosis where the provider uses their clinical judgment. Honestly, I don't understand why there is still so much confusion. Sepsis 2 and Sepsis 3 have the same definition now. SEP1 core measures may nominally include patients with a diagnosis code of sepsis according to the previous SERS criteria, but you need an R65.2 code to trigger the bundle. All sepsis now is essentially the condition formally known as severe sepsis. Organ dysfunction was the element that elevated historical sepsis to severe status. All patients diagnosed with sepsis currently should be documented in a way which permits the coding of severe sepsis and they all trigger SEP1. Here are the key elements to educating the providers and getting everyone on the same page. One, there has to be a documented infection, and it can be confirmed or presumed, but there has to be an infection, and the patient should be sicker than is typical for an average patient with that same underlying infection. You can have colloquially walking pneumonia where you get an outpatient z pack and go about your business or you can have acute hypoxic respiratory failure with encephalopathy and be in the ICU. The latter patient has sepsis on top of their pneumonia. Two, there is organ dysfunction due to the response to the infection, ergo sepsis. The SOFA score may lend support, but it is not mandatory. You should be informed that the SOFA bar is pretty low. For instance, A pulse ox of 95% on room air scores one on SOFA. There are other organ dysfunctions which are not part of SOFA, but which still would support the diagnosis of sepsis. Please see my article today in ICD-10 Monitor for more detail about the organ dysfunction and about this whole um, subject in general. Number three, the documentation should be clear, consistent, and should support the code of severe sepsis. My macro is sepsis due to, and then here you name the infection, with acute sepsis-related organ dysfunction as evidenced by, and here the provider documents the organ dysfunctions. For instance, you could use the SOFA scores being greater than or equal to 2 as your support. I know some of you are going to type in, could you please give us that um, macro again? I will say it again right now, but it's in my article. It's sepsis due to the infection with acute sepsis-related organ dysfunction as evidenced by, and then you specify the organ dysfunction. I think using this templated verbiage will also help the provider organize their thoughts and may help them recognize sepsis. So if they think about the patient and they can use this template, then the patient has sepsis, the condition formerly known as severe sepsis. And then the fourth thing is the core measures have to be addressed for every patient with sepsis now because they all either have R6520, severe sepsis without septic shock, or R6521, septic shock, and therefore... All septic patients now trigger core measures. Additionally, have your providers avoid sepsis-adjacent verbiage like impending sepsis, sepsis sepsis-like syndrome, met sepsis criteria, or started sepsis protocol without an explicit diagnosis of sepsis. If the patient has an infection from which they are sicker than the average patient, they have acute organ dysfunction, and the provider documents sepsis and the payer denies the diagnosis, fight it. You may want to be proactive and do a second level review of sepsis cases to make sure your providers and coders are getting this right. If you need another set of eyes, have your consultant do a targeted review. Remember though, the proper diagnosis of sepsis isn't for DRG assignment or to improve quality metrics. It is to save lives. But you are entitled to get credit for seeing sick patients and to be appropriately compensated. Chuck?
1: Thank you, Erica, very much. What an outstanding report that was. And a reminder, be sure to read Erica's reporting on Sepsis 3 in today's edition of the ICD-10 Monitoring News. We've asked our panelists to stick around for a couple of questions. Erica, Karen had written earlier, do you have any information on when CMS will be adopting Sepsis 3 criteria?
2: I wish I did and um, the day that CMS wants to make me a helpful consultant and uh, change the process and make things better and more efficient and more sensible and more practical, I'm on board. So let them know, but uh, I do not know when sepsis 3 is going to become the CMS criteria. For now, I think you need to stick with what you've what you been using. Hey,
1: and by the way, you can read uh, Dr. Reaver's excellent reporting on Substance 3. It's in today's edition of ICD-10 Monetary News, and that's going to be a wrap for us. This is our 354th edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. And Eric and I want to thank our panels today, Rose Dunn, Terry Fletcher, Laurie Johnson, Tim Powell. And, of course, you can listen to us on Talk 10 Tuesday podcast. You can listen anytime, anywhere, on any device. It's free. You can listen to us on Stitcher. Apple, Spotify, Google Play. And a reminder, be sure to download an on-demand version of the Sepsis webcast. This is the one that features Dr. Megan Cortazio. By the way, you can save 25 bucks by using the coupon code TUESDAY. I'm Chuck Buck reporting for Talk 10 Tuesday and ICD-10 Monitor. Thank you again for being with us.
0: Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.